0: Well, in just a moment, we'll pick up in Acts 13 and, and read in verse 44 uh, together through 14.7. But uh, by way of introduction, let me start this way. August 9, 1788, Adoniam Judson was born in Malden, Massachusetts, the eldest son of a Congregationalist pastor. Judson displayed a strong intellect early in life and was taught to read by his mother at the age of three. He especially excelled in linguistics And distinguished himself in grammar school with his study of Greek. The majority of the books to which Judson had access were his father's theological books. But as one historian noted, though he read them, he had little genuine interest in the subject matter. While the word of God was near to young Judson, he studied it only out of a self-seeking ambition. He entered Brown University, a Baptist university, at the age of 16, a year early. And as a sophomore... And then he graduated top of his class three years later in 1807. While attending Brown, he was introduced to what is called French infidelity, which is a deistic philosophy. A young uh, president of Yale College, Timothy Dwight, said of this growing acceptance of French infidelity, the vices they loved, and soon they found principles necessary to quiet their consciences. This tells you something about what he was influenced in and what his life looked like. While Judson studied at Brown, he became close friends with a man by the name of Jacob Ames. Ames was an ambitious young man and was a proponent of this deism and this deistic philosophy. However, after college, Judson would return home for a brief time where he would work at a publishing house in his hometown. But as he was working there, he came to realize quickly that his his new philosophical thoughts and life leanings were not too much in sync with the hometown and the people around him. He made his parents aware of this and let them know that he would be leaving for New York to find a way of life that suited his new beliefs. So while seeking to become a playwright, he joined a band of strolling players. And Judson would later write in life, he classified this group of people as of people who lived reckless. And a vagabond lifestyle. And after a period, he would decide to head west in search of further adventure. After days travel, Judson found himself lodging in a small inn. The caretaker would explain to him that he would be placed in a room next to a young man who was severely ill and near death. What disturbed Judson that night more than the groans of the young man's cries... And his pain and anguish were the con- and the constant flow of visitors coming to see him were thoughts of life after death. Judson would ask himself, was this man ready for death? Judson would ask himself, am I ready for death? The following morning he inquired about the man's condition and he was told that he in fact had died in the night. He asked innkeeper if he knew who he was and he replied, oh yes young man is from the College of Providence. His name was Ames, Jacob Ames. This shook Judson to his very core. He could not, he would write later, this could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. He immediately returned home where he conferred with his parents. and During this time, he was converted and he would enroll at Andover Seminary in 1808. Well to make a long story short it was during that time that Judson would become convinced and he would be one of the pioneers of what we know as the modern missionary movement he would give his life to the mission work of Burma modern day Myanmar he would experience resistance during this time a difficult political environment a season of jail of life in jail for himself harsh living conditions but he would give his life to this work. It would be six years before Judson would even see his first convert in this missionary work. During his time there, he would lose two wives, five children to illness while he was on the mission field. On April the 12th, 1850, Judson died at sea while making a voyage. He was away from his family and his final words were these, How few there are who, who die so hard. Now, why do I tell this story this morning? I emphasize Judson as he's a great example of one who was living for sinful self-fulfillment, but he was saved by God's radical grace. And he was compelled to, by that grace, to give his life to sharing that news with others who didn't know it. I don't hold Judson up as some sort of elite Christian. I don't hold him up to bring us all down for not being Judson's. Although I do hope there are Judson's in this room this morning. No, I hold him up this morning as an example of God's grace. It is knowing God's grace that compels you and I to share the gospel with our kids, with our neighbors, with our family members, with our co-workers. It's God's grace that compels us to give of our resources to send Judson's to send earls, to send masters, to send busers, to send McAuliffe's, to send Benson's, to compels us to plant churches even locally in our own community. See, in the text before us this morning, this is what we'll see, that the greatest news of all is the gospel, which answers the greatest need of all, sin and death. And it is that news that drives mission forward in the midst of of a resistance, hardship, and successes. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word, and let's pick up in verse 44 of chapter 13, and we'll read into the next chapter through verse 7. And This is the word of the Lord. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt had been made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystria and Derbia, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued... To preach the gospel let us pray father what we have not give us what we know not teach us what we are not make us and do it for your glory by the power of your word and your holy spirit this morning it's in the name of christ we pray amen well let me just give you a quick outline of the text this morning of what we'll be looking at we'll we'll jump around and take themes if you will in this text And so my first point will be resistance and hostility to the gospel. My second point will be God's sovereignty and belief. And my third point will be steadfast proclamation. So first, let's think on this resistance and hostility that we see to the proclamation of the gospel and to the good news and God's word moving forward in mission. As we saw last week as Pastor Ken preached and he laid out to you the message right right there in the beginning of 14, this gospel message that they are proclaiming. And so this text just picks up. Obviously, it's a continuation. This is a narrative passage. It picks right up on the heels of that and shows the continuation of this. And so so what is it that they're proclaiming? They're proclaiming the very good news that we looked at in the first part of the chapter each time they get the opportunity. They're telling the good news of Jesus Christ, how he's coming to the world to save sinners. And so we see this in uh, verse 44, right? As they come again the next Sabbath following the pattern that they've been following, right? And they go, and it says, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is just language that's emphasizing a lot of people. A multitude of people gathered together to hear. Uh, it's stirring up interest in the region, and people are gathering to hear God's word and hear this proclamation of the gospel. But what we see is, We see there's resistance and hostility all throughout this passage. In chapter 13, in verses 45 and 46, 50 and 51, in chapter 14, verse 2 and verse 6, we see hostility, we see resistance. Let me just highlight some of it for you. The responses are they're filled with jealousy, verse 45 of chapter 13. In verse 45, there's contradiction that's going on there. Let's look at that verse together. It says, but they, the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him as well. So this is literally blaspheming him, blaspheming Christ, coming against him with strong language and slandering Paul. So let's speak of him ill to see if we can bring him down and bring him down in the estimation of others. And then you see in verse 46, as they address them, they just say outright what they're doing. They're rejecting the message, right? They're thrusting it aside, is what uh, Paul and Barnabas tell them. They spoke boldly, it says, saying that since you have thrust it aside, there's a rejection of it. Verse 50, we see that now there is those who are seeking to actually persecute it. But the Jews inside of the devout women... Uh, Josephus and others of the time would note that women were drawn to, uh, uh, with God-fears to synagogues in their day. And so apparently they, would, uh, they were trying to incite the women of high standing to want to influence their husbands, who were the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against them. And so it's not enough to try to undermine the message, but they must stop the message if they can. They must outright stop it with hostility and with violence if they can. And then if you look at verse 50 again, the result is they drove them out of the district and tried to push them out to stop them. And when they moved to the next region, look in verse uh, 2 of uh, 14, look at what it says there. It says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds. So here they're again seeking to undermine the message, seeking to turn the minds of the people against both the message and the messengers. And then you see in chapter, I mean in verse 4 of chapter 14, but the people of the city were divided. This should not surprise us as Jesus himself said the message would divide family against family. And we see that the city is divided within on those who are receiving the message and those who aren't. And so what we see to this good news is that there is resistance. There's resistance because of jealousy. There's resistance that that leads to contradiction, that leads to slander, that leads to outright physical hostility to the message, that leads to driving them out, to seeking to shut them up, that seeks to poison the minds. Let's just say this another way. That seeks to catechize the mind to the philosophies of the day opposite of Christianity. And that the gospel divides and that it leads to mistreatment. That's the last thing that we see in 14 verse 5. When the tent was made by both Gentiles and the Jews and the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Why these responses? Why these responses to the good news of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God that apart from Christ we are enemies of God that the very gospel is an assault on our personal autonomy this very personal autonomy that Adam and Eve sought to establish in the garden at the very first fall when sin was introduced into the world as our first parents and we have all followed their suit as they were there in the garden and they said, we don't need God's word. They rejected his word and said, we can do this on our own. And we will eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And we will set our own course and our own trajectory and our own path. And we will go about through our own life and our own wisdom and fulfill ourselves apart from God. This is this desire for autonomy. Let's say it another way. It's a desire to be God ourselves, Brothers and sisters, this is why there's the very result of death because of sin. That God was putting the curse upon us to show us that we are not God. That the very thing that we were supposed to have authority over the dust of the earth, that we were to trod on and be his vice regents, that that very thing that we were to exercise our dominion over would exercise dominion over us in our death as we are put into the ground. And it's a reminder, and it's a hard reminder, is it not, that you and I are not self-sufficient, that we are not our own God, and that we are not unstoppable, omniscient omnipresent, and all-powerful. And all Brothers and sisters, it's a sobering thing. But the Bible is clear that apart from Christ, we are His enemies, that we are continuing in that hell-bound race to, to establish ourselves as God, to establish our glory, and to live for ourselves. And this gospel is an assault on that personal autonomy because the natural response is, I don't need a savior, I'm fine. There's nothing deficient in me. I just need to dig deeper and look deeper within myself and find what I need and fulfill myself. I can set my own course of self-fulfillment. I can be moral. I can be good. I'm better than others. And the gospel assaults all of those natural tendencies within us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved is the power of God. But to those who are not believers, they say, that's foolishness. That's weakness, a savior that would die for me. I don't need that. Oh, well, brothers and sisters, we should testify that it is absolutely necessary. That Christ lay down his life for us. Paul continues that argument in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, there is this outright hostility to the gospel because it assaults our very sensibilities, it assaults our autonomy. And it reminds us first of the bad news before we have to hear the good news. And if we don't believe the bad news that we are not God and that we are in trouble and that we are in desperate need of a Savior, we will never believe the good news that Christ came and died for us and defeated sin and death on our behalf. And so the result is this outright hostility to the gospel And this rejection of it and this desire to shut it up and to quench it out because it is dividing, it is dividing loyalties and it is bringing people out of darkness and into light and those who are in the darkness don't want the light. Brothers and sisters, there's much to be encouraged about in this passage as well because there's a reason that we see this steadfast proclamation of the gospel. Look with me back at verse 48. So We see that, let me me back up just a moment to 46 again. This is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. This is their pattern, to preach it to God's people, the Jewish people, and then to the Gentiles. And they say, since you've deemed yourselves, you've rejected it, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And here they quote from Isaiah 49, For the word of the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so here in Isaiah 49, this is one of the the servant uh, psalms, if you will. And so as it's speaking of God's servant who will be a light to the Gentiles, we would understand that that is fulfilled in Christ. And thus being fulfilled in Christ, who is taking the gospel to all nations, he has given the commission to us, his people, Acts 1-8, to go and to be his witnesses into all nations. And so this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing. As they're looking back to Isaiah 49, we are now to continue, although the gospel has been rejected, to continue to proclaim it, to the Gentiles. In verse 48, this is anybody who's not Jewish. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then look at this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And friends, right here in verse 48, what do we see? We see God's sovereignty. And we see man's responsibility. We see belief happening. See the encouraging part of this of this passage is, is that God has a plan of redemption. And the really encouraging news is that God never fails at anything that He sets out to do. And part of His means for accomplishing that plan, as we'll see in a moment, is them continuing to proclaim this good news. And so, here in this passage, what, what Luke is pointing out and what is being said in this passage is God's sovereignty in salvation. It's very clear. And as many as were appointed or or ordained to eternal life, they believed. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over salvation. This is a theme that is rich throughout Scripture. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, we can see this. Let me just paraphrase a little bit of it. But God, it says, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. Us for adoption. We see in Romans 8 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then we continue on with the golden chain as it's been referred to throughout church history. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over salvation. That there is mystery here too. God's election as he has set his love upon his people and he is calling them to Himself. Some have sought to understand this in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to understand it to mean that God would look down through the halls of time and he would recognize those who would believe in him and then he would set his election on them. Friend, that is not election. That is not foreknew. That is foresight you is covenantal language a man knows his wife right that's, that's a covenantal language that God knew them in advance and he predestined them to himself and so that God has looked down through and he has ordained those or he has chosen those and that they will believe the gospel well let me just first explain what this does not mean it doesn't mean that man's response doesn't matter. There is no room for hyper-Calvinism that says we don't need to proclaim the gospel and people don't need to believe and receive the gospel. It must be received and believed. It's clear in this passage. In this verse 48 and verse 46, they rejected it. In verse 48, there are those who believe, right? We just saw it as we're pointed to eternal life. Believed. It doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't need to be proclaimed. It doesn't mean that the gospel isn't offered freely to all. Notice it is offered freely to all as they go and they proclaim the gospel. And those who reject it, reject it. But they continue proclaiming the gospel to all. So there's no room for those who would say the gospel shouldn't be freely offered. Yes, we believe God is sovereign over salvation. Yes, we believe in the free offer of the gospel that whosoever will may come. Yes, we believe that and affirm that wholeheartedly. Brothers and sisters, we can join with the great Donald Gray Barnhouse who said that salvation is understanding. If we see the door of salvation over it, it says whosoever will may come. And as those who cross the line of faith and they look back over that doorway as they enter in, it says, Chosen before the foundation of the world. Friends, there is mystery here, no doubt. But here, what we're witnessing is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Something that we don't fully comprehend and understand. But these two themes are present in Scripture. And if someone asked Spurgeon at one point, How do you reconcile? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He says, I don't, you never have to reconcile two friends. Brothers and sisters, what should this do for you and I this morning? It should produce confidence in us. This is not something, if someone else said, to keep you up at night, but this is a pillow to lay your head down on. Because we can go and we can boldly proclaim the gospel knowing that God has those whom he will save and who, and that he is never going to fail at what he has set out to do. So if I can, and I hope it's encouraging to you, it'll be more encouraging than just hearing from me. Can I quote from Spurgeon at length? Listen to Spurgeon preaching in an open-air evangelistic meeting. And listen to his confidence in the sovereign grace of God and his plan of salvation. And I don't know about you, but hearing what we're about to hear, it encourages evangelistic fervor in me. So let me quote from Spurgeon's sermon. I quote Oh, I love God's shalls and wills, there is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say shall, what good is it for? I will, says man, and he never performs. I shall, says he, and he breaks his promises. But it's never so with God's shalls. If he says shall, it shall be done. And when he says will, it will be done. Now he has said here, many shall come. The devil says they shall not come, but they shall come. You yourself say we won't come, but God says you shall come. Yes, yes. There are some here who are laughing at salvation, who can scoff at Christ and mock the gospel, but I tell some shall come yet. What say you? Can God make me become a Christian? I tell you yes, for herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask for your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it, but it makes you willing on the day of God's power And then he continued, they shall come, they shall come. Ye may laugh, you may despise us. Jesus Christ shall not die for nothing. If some of you reject him, there are some of you who will not. If there are some of you that have not been saved, others shall be. Christ shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. They shall come and nothing in heaven or on earth nor in hell can stop them from coming. It's easy to preach Spurgeon. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, that is good news. We fail. Our wills and our shalls often mean nothing. But God's shalls and wills always come to fruition. And so this morning, that should give us confidence. It sure gave confidence to Paul and Barnabas in the midst of such opposition and such resistance and those who are even seeking to kill them and take their very lives to continue on proclaiming the gospel. What about any of you in this room this morning? Maybe you've said no. Maybe you've laughed. Maybe you've scoffed. Maybe you've thought, what is all this about? Look back at 38 of verse 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And I tell you this morning, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you today. And today could be the day of salvation. That today could be the day that you understand your sin. You understand your sin. You're standing before a holy God who created you. You can run from him. You can fight him. You can shake your fist in his face. But I'm telling you, he made you. He created you. He lays claim on you. You belong to him and you will answer to him. And there is one way that you can stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you can stand before him as a child in whom he loves and is well pleased. And you can receive his mercy and grace. But there is only one way that you can receive that. And that is through Christ Jesus of humbling yourself, throwing yourself on his mercy and grace. And crying out unto him to be saved. And whosoever will may come and be saved. Today may be the day of salvation for you, friend. Look to Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is this confidence in God's sovereignty that drives my final point, the steadfast proclamation of the gospel. Chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So what do they do? They proclaim the word of the Lord. They were run out of town. There was joy and fullness of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, chapter 1, what did they do? They entered together in the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Right? They proclaimed the word of the Lord. They're threatened. They're, they, they seek to stone them. What do they do? Look at verse 7 of 14. And there they continued to preach the gospel. It's like, what else would we do? Let's just keep on preaching. Let's just keep on proclaiming this good news. They're thinking we haven't found anything better yet to proclaim. So let's proclaim the gospel. They're confident in God's call and mission in Acts 1-8 that he sent them out and that all authority, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, has been given to him. And so as he commissions them to go and make disciples, they're like, we're just doing what the king of all the universe told us to do. There's nowhere on earth that we can go that he doesn't have authority. And all lesser authorities, they may oppose us and they may resist us, but they don't have the real authority. He has the real authority. Oh, and last time we checked, he's the one that was dead and is now alive forevermore. So he can give us hope beyond the grave. What better thing to do than to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? See, they're confident And God's call and mission, and they're confident in God's means for accomplishing His mission. Therefore, they press on. They press on. Brothers and sisters, what about us? What should we do? Let me give you four things. They all start with P because I'm Baptist, just like we had three points because I'm Baptist. Let me give you three things. Pray, preach the gospel to yourself, proclaim it to others, and persevere patiently. Let's look at pray. I, you should, if you take notes, write this down. If you don't take notes, it doesn't offend me. If you take notes, write down Colossians 4 2 through 4. There, Paul prays and asks for prayer at the end of the letter to the church at Colossae. And this is what he says He says, Pray that God may open a door for the word. He's absolutely committed to proclaiming it. He says, Pray that God would open up a door. So that we can proclaim it. And then notice what he says next if you go and read it later. Pray that I may make it clear as I ought. What a great prayer. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. So I'm not real sure who to share the gospel with. I feel like my life's rather insulated. There's, there's not many people around me. Just begin to pray that God would either place people into your life or open your eyes to the people who are already there that you could share the good news with. Pray. Pray that God would open the door for you and pray that when the door is open that you'll have the courage to take it and that you would make the gospel clear as you ought. Pastor John Falmer, preaching on this passage, said something that has stuck with me for many years. Before you talk to your friends about God, talk to God about your friends. It's very simple. Before you talk... To your friends about God. Talk to God about your friends, pray for them. Pray for boldness, Acts 4:29, uh, Acts as we saw earlier in the book of Acts, when they were arrested and they were threatened, right? When they're meeting this resistance and this threat of persecution, I, it blows my mind, their prayer. Go back and read it. But notice what they did. They didn't pray, God, please stop this persecution which we pray that often for the persecuted church, and I think that's a great prayer to pray, but but I think we should take note of their prayer specifically that as they are being threatened in the midst of this proclamation and as they're meeting this resistance, notice what they pray, and I quote, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and stop them. No, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What a great prayer. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for boldness. That we would proclaim the word as we ought. And that when we meet resistance, that we would be bold. And by the way, boldness does not mean jerkiness. Right? That's not what it means. Peter says with gentleness and love. Right? That we would present and give a defense for our faith. Some of us love to give it and forget about the gentleness part. Some of us love to get it and forget about the love part, except for just loving to give it and loving to be right. This is not about winning debates or scoring points or owning the unbelievers, to use political language, right? This is not what that's about. This is about going and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come into the world to save sinners, to proclaim the gospel of grace. Next. Preach the gospel to yourself. Brothers and sisters, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, first and foremost, it humbles us. Think about Isaac Watts' hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. As we preach the gospel to ourselves, we're reminded that we're not on God's team because of something great in us. That he didn't say, hey, yeah, I want you because you're awesome. No, remember, we were dead when he came to us in our trespasses and sin. And we were enemies of God, actively rebelling against a holy God when he came to us. There was nothing in us that he sought out of us except to set his love on us and make us his children. And when we preach the gospel to us, it humbles us. And we once again are amazed by grace. Brother and sister in Christ, just think about that for a moment and just think about maybe your day or your week and you think about every bit of gossip that you spoke or indulged. You think about every uh, bit of envy or greed in your heart. You think about every impatient moment that you had 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patience, so impatience is hate. So every bit of impatience, all these respectable sins that we gloss over and make excuses for, God judges those sins. But because of Christ, He looks at us as beloved children because He paid the price for those sins. That good news humbles us and builds us up in grace so that we are then propelled and compelled to go and to share that good news with others. It does not come from a place of pride, but it comes from a place of beggars telling other beggars where to get bread. Be reminded and amazed by God's continual grace to you. When you're tempted to think, is the gospel powerful enough to save them? If you're well acquainted with your own sin, you only need to think, if it saved me, it can save them. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel to yourself often. Let it humble you and be amazed by God's grace. As we sang a moment ago, not only did he pay our sin debt and bring us to zero, but he credited us his righteousness and gives us his favor, that when God looks upon us, he sees us in Christ. Next, proclaim to others. Be reminded of God's sovereignty. This is his plan. Friend, be reminded that the power is in the message and not in the messenger. So often we are fearful to share the gospel because we don't think we can do it. We don't think we know enough. We don't think we would have an answer to every one of their objections friend you know the gospel you know the greatest news of all Romans 1:16 says it's the power of God unto salvation just unleash it and proclaim it and be reminded that the power is in the gospel and not in you last persevere patiently persevere patiently Remember what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 4 as he's talking about his ministry and giving an apologetic for his apostolic ministry. There he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay and he's talking about the gospel. We have this good news of Jesus Christ in jars of clay, them as vessels, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, right? The power God's is not ours. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And grace extends to more and more people so that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart. says, So we don't lose heart. Brothers and sisters, we're going to experience these things. We're going to experience affliction, but you remember you are not crushed. You're going to be perplexed at times. Why won't they just believe? Why won't they just understand the good news and receive it? But don't be driven to despair. And as long as you have opportunity, continue to proclaim it. You'll be persecuted, but you're not forsaken, for God is with you. You'll be struck down, but you are not destroyed. And you continue in that gospel ministry so that you do not lose heart. Why? Because it's all for God's glory. Friend, persevere patiently in the gospel ministry. Because God has called us to it. It's His plan. He's established it. He's provided Christ victorious over sin and death. And he has allowed us to be a part of this mission. Therefore, we persevere. In closing, I'd ask you to consider the story of Luke Short. As one historian related it. It took a long time for the conversion of Mr. Short. He was a New England farmer who lived to be 100 years old. Sometime in the middle of the 1700s, he was sitting in his fields reflecting on his long life. And as he did, he recalled the sermon that he heard in Dartmouth, England as a boy before he sailed to America. The horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated on the words he had heard so long ago, and he was converted to Christ. Eighty-five years after hearing John Flavel preach. The preacher, John Flavel, had been a faithful evangelist 85 years earlier. And the fruit of that faithful evangelism was not realized until long after he was dead. Charles Bridges, another early 19th century English minister, said it this way. The seed may lie under the clods until long after you lie there and then spring up. Brothers and sisters... We may not always see the fruit, but the faith is in God. The power is in His gospel, and it's not in us. So we just continue to sow the seed and proclaim the good news and let Him do the work for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it this morning to build us up, to confirm the faith in our hearts. Call lost sinners to faith and repentance. Father, to move us more and more toward faithfulness. Repentance where we need it for growth and grace as Christians. And Father, would we become more and more the people you've called us to be. Give us a heart for those in our community, in our own homes, in our, across the street, across town, and across the world. Father, we join the Apostle Paul And we say, open a door for us that we may speak the word and that we may speak it clearly as we ought for your glory and give us perseverance in this. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.